I'm Larry Bishop, and you're listening to the World is Wrong podcast. We're here to tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about Wilder Napalm. <laughs> Welcome to The World is Wrong, an extremely positive podcast where we celebrate films the world is wrong about. I am one of your hosts, and my name is Andras Jones. And I'm one of your hosts, and my name is Brian Connolly. I tried to say that like that Dennis Quaid. I, try, I, I tried to say it with this big old smirk. <laughs> I am... Andras Jones. Uh, yeah, well, we're here. To, we're here to talk about one of your selections, a film that I know you've been wanting to do here for a while, for a wilder, wilder Napalm from 1993, directed by Glenn Gordon Karen, uh, starring Arliss Howard, Deborah Winger, and Dennis Quaid. Although that's not the order in which they are listed on the box (laughs) (laughs) one of my biggest pet peeves i don't know if you know i feel this way as an actor is when they have the movie poster or the box and there's the names and then the people's faces and they don't line up i I hate Uh, i hate i hate that i hate that where like it'll say like 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 sean connery and wesley snipes but then wesley snipes will be under shot because it's like they at the last minute decided to change the title order or because of some dispute with their manager or who that drives me mad. I don't know why I used rising sun as an example. I don't think that's true, but it's like that is, has that ever happened to you or you're on the poster and someone oh, else's name yes. is, <laughs> oh, 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 I don't mean, I, I could uh, every time <laughs> I could just go to, go on a list of like, so in the movie far from home, I'm on the cover, but I name my name isn't on the cover. Oh, it's when, not even when, on there. No. Oh man. Uh, <laughs> when the Attic Exp- Expeditions came out, face on the cover, name not even. I'm the lead. Name's not even on the cover. <laughs> now it's a, the with the Severn re-release. They got my name on it. Uh, when Nightmare on Elm Street Four came out, the press release that they sent out under my picture, it was Rodney Eastman's name. <laughs> No respect. No respect. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, uh, yeah. So you you have uh, <laughs> you've touched a sore spot there, buddy. Well, so we all feel for Arliss Howard, um, who, who is, is the star of this movie. Star of this movie, but got yeah. Like on IMDb, he's third listed after Deborah Winger, after Dennis Quaid. So because like, alphabetical order, he should be first, and in order of him being the star, he should be first. He would be alphabetical order by first name and last name. It's not fair. <laughs> but yeah. Anyways, <laughs> I think I think we kind of we already dug in here. So so uh, do we, should we just play a clip of this film and then we'll get into talking about it? Let's do it. There might be spoilers. There might be spoilers. There might be spoilers. They know what you can do? Sure do. Ah, why? We're just one big old thermonuclear family, Wilder. (laughs) 
Christ, Wallace. You're a clown. Good job. Well, you too, Wilder. Photo booth jockey. <laughs> Very impressive. Kind of like the Marlboro Man or something. <laughs> a nice rug, Wilder. Good look for you. Real hair never grew back, huh? I'm uh, real sorry about that. Go drop your pants and chase a donut, you and your single Helix friends. Oh, fellas, what did I say wrong? He's going all ballistic on me. <laughs> so, how's Vita? Still with me? Well, hell, I knew that. Coming into town today, we saw y'all's love burn across the clouds. Real meteorological phenomenon. You and Sweet Vita still living in that trailer park? Homie! <laughs> Why, I think that's just the perfect place to just pop down, start grinding out rug rats. <laughs> just be domestic. <laughs> Buy some spinning daisy reflectors for the yard. Let those beautiful, dirty-faced little children just run around the neighborhood with no pants on. <laughs> A fate worse than death proclaims my brother, the clown. This guy's been blowing our fuses with his air conditioner, Biff. This air conditioner? Don't do it. Is this the machine to which you refer? I said this beautiful... Climate-controlled, frost-free tundra wonder! Oh boy, oh boy. I'm, I'm excited to uh, talk about this movie. Um, I may be the only person in the planet who's excited about talking about this movie from my experience. I am. <laughs> from my experience of trying to get people excited about this. So, here's the plot of Wilder Napalm. I'll make it I'll make it simple. Uh there's a man named Wilder. He works in a little kind of photo mat. I don't think these really exist anymore, but back in the day pre-digital, you'd have this little place where you'd drop your film off and they would give you developed photos. And that's his job. He works in the middle of this ter- terrible kind of dehumanizing strip mall dead center in the parking lot. His uh Wife, Deborah Winger, playing Vita, is uh, on house arrest. House arrest because she committed arson and she has an ankle bracelet and she just stays home and is counting down the days when she can leave her house finally. So Wilder's at work and all of a sudden a circus shows up, a, a traveling carnival. And lo and behold, the lead of this ragtag group is Wallace. A clown, a circus clown, played by Dennis Quaid, who also happens to be Wilder's estranged brother. Of course, he, his estranged brother, Wallace, had a relationship with Deborah Winger's character in the past. It caused a major rift between brothers. And now, with his appearance back in the town, this rift kind of is bubbled back up. There's sort of a love triangle that's going on here. There's definitely a competition between brothers over the, you know, the love of this woman. She's frustrated because Wilder kind of 
wants to live a simple life and doesn't really want to go crazy with anything. She's about to get out of house arrest and wants to go out to see the opera and the, the symphony and just go on a town. And he doesn't want to do that. He wants to just call out numbers at, uh, for, for bingo. <laughs> He's also a volunteer. Uh, uh, Wilder's also a volunteer fireman. And he travels around this little town putting out fires with his fellow firemen who are all led by M. Emmett Walsh returning to the world is wrong and an acapella group, the mighty echoes playing the rest of the firefighters. And occasionally throughout the film, we get a beautiful song from them. Oh, did I mention the brothers both have pyrokinesis, the ability to start <laughs> fires with their mind. That is also what this movie is about. Uh, it kind of is a play on uh, Firestarter. The movie references it very openly uh, and it's just a crazy sort of comedy, romance, silly, mean, strange film. One could draw comparisons to the, the work of Tim Burton or Barry Sonnenfeld, but the script by Vince Gilligan, who later brought us Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, taps into some weird kind of character study in the way that he does so well. Uh, this is a great movie. I... Had never seen this movie before uh, within the last two years is when I first saw it. And it's just, it's an exciting thing to talk about. I'm excited to tell everyone about it, though no one else is excited to hear about it in my experience until now. So. Wow. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, you kind of, you, you, we've already gotten into a little bit of how the world is wrong about this, but do you want to dig in a little bit more on your personal experience of the wrongness of the world sure. around this film? Yeah, so basically this movie was made and then it was shelved uh, for a few years. The studio didn't know what to do with it, which is why I feel it doesn't feel like a movie from 1993. Clearly it was made a few years before that in the early 90s. And when it was released, I think it was just kind of dumped on video and didn't really... Like it had a small theatrical release and made nothing. Nobody really talked about it. It came and went and it was gone. <laughs> there is still no good real release of this movie. I believe some archive put the DVD out. I don't know if it was MGM or which, which archive, maybe Warner Archive. And uh, it's just kind of thrown on a DVD. I feel this movie deserves a real Blu-ray release. I was so excited when I watched this because I was on a Dennis Quaid high. Because sort of like my into this movie was realizing that Dennis Quaid is actually brilliant and very exciting. Whereas before two years ago, I wrote him off as just some handsome guy from Texas who's in movies and he's fine. And But Randy Quaid's the wild one. And, and but then I, I kind of went through a line of Dennis Quaid movies. I started with The Big Easy and he is great in it and he is really over the top. And it reminded me a lot of sort of the best of Nicolas Cage and I was like, oh, I didn't know that Dennis Quaid had that in him. Then I watched Great Balls of Fire. And again, he's just playing the kind of unhinged, crazy performance you want from someone playing crazy, unhinged Jerry Lee Lewis. And I was like, oh, my, I had no idea that Dennis Quaid was actually a very interesting, exciting actor. I always liked him. I liked him in the things I've seen, but I wasn't seeing the right stuff. I didn't realize that he's been holding back. It's sort of like when you seeds that the best of Alec Baldwin when he's doing really good comedy and you're like oh I had no idea you were actually this is like your strength this is what you're really good at and I kind of that clicked with Dennis Quaid for me 
And then I went off and running, fell right into Wilder Napalm, not knowing much about it. Just kind of being like, oh, it's written by Vince Gilligan. This is interesting. I don't know how excited I am to see a, a romantic comedy starring Arliss Howard and Deborah Winger and Dennis Quaid, but I'll give it a chance. I watched it. I was totally floored by it. So excited. I was like, why have I never seen this movie? This is the type of movie that I would have loved like as a teenager, as a, a man in his 20s and his 30s. And like, why did it take me till I was about 40 to see this movie? I don't know what it is about it. Maybe we'll figure it out through this episode. But something about this movie really clicks with me. I got so excited. I convinced the Alamo Drafthouse to show a rare, pristine 35 millimeter print of it that they found to an audience of people. I excitedly got up in front of everybody Talked about how this movie's great. I'm so excited. And maybe I oversold it. Like maybe I, I'm doing that here because nobody in the audience really connected with it. Everyone was kind of like left the movie either hating it or just going, huh, okay. And I was just kind of left alone again, shaking my head, being like, I know this movie's great, but I can't, I need to find the other people out there. I need to find my Wilder Napalm tribe that can connect to me with this movie. <laughs> And so that's sort of my how the world is wrong. And maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this is the first time ever where I am the one who's wrong and everyone else is right. But I swear to you, this movie's good. <laughs> it's really, really, really good. And it's so good that it's one of those movies that when I'm watching it, I often think this might be my favorite movie. It, it often happens when I watch this film. And I've seen it a number of times now. So there you go. Well, I have questions for you. <laughs> I'm sure you do. <laughs> but let me tell you about my experience with this film, if you don't mind. Sure, please. So I think I've talked about it on the show, but I have this thing, and it's not it's not really it's not really a good thing as I, I, I'm not it's not something I'm proud of. It's a weird quirk of my psyche, but when there's a movie that I hear about that I hear that I get really excited from what I've heard about it, I sort of decide, okay, well, I'm going to, I need to see this, but the time has to be totally just right. So that's why it took me like 10 years to see Under the Skin. In the meantime, I saw hundreds of movies that were crap, <laughs> but I could, but I could watch them without it. Like I just didn't have this thing about it that I knew it was an important thing. And I so Wilder Napalm fits into that because when I guess I, w I was in L.A. when it came out, and I remember it getting really great reviews, at least where I read the reviews I read. And at the time, I was pretty excited about Arliss Howard. It was it was a few years from Full Metal Jacket, but he was. I know Vince D'Onofrio is kind of seen as the breakout star from that, but I, for me, the breakout star was Arliss Howard. I just thought he was so great in that movie. His death scene was one of the most, uh, like as an actor watching it, at, as a young actor watching it, it was just a real, I don't know, an inspiration of like what what could be achieved by an actor. Uh, it's just fantastic. So uh, so I guess my point is that even though I this is the first time I've seen this movie because you suggested it, it's been in my mind 
in a positive place. And I've been looking forward to it. And then I watched it on Tubi. And, you know, I have a lot of fondness for Tubi. They've uh, they, they put Mad Dog Time on their service after we covered it. Of course, probably because of our coverage. Uh, <laughs> But uh, but with this, when I watched it, they, they break it up with commercials. And this film, when I watched it broken up by commercials, it really, it really messed it up for me. And I knew it. there was something. I wasn't sure if I liked the film, but I knew that I needed to watch it again without those breaks. And then you told me, hey, this is on Amazon Prime. So it's like, okay, cool. Well, I watched that. So I, I watched it again last night and I definitely had a better experience I still have misgivings about it. There's some things. There's, I, I think I know why I, you know, where I where the film loses me and where it, and where it gets me. But I also watch it and I got a really good sense of why, of course, why you love this film. It's <laughs> it's very like there's a lot of things there that are, uh, you know, knowing you, I can see. Oh, well, this is a well, it's. It opens with a, big, a scene with Jim Varney not doing earnest, but being great. And I'm like, well, of course, that's 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 your that's your Mordecai's mustache. <laughs> Jim Varney, just automatic four stars, no matter what the movie yeah. is. He shows up. I think and it. it yeah. For you, it adds two stars to the rating. <laughs> Whatever the original rating is, it's two, two more stars. <laughs> If he's in it. So I get it. You know, when there are people that you just love, it's like when Scoot with, with me and Scoot McNary and Frank, it's like, okay, well this, this film already has some extra zhuzh to it. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so I, 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 uh, I, I'm really looking forward to talking with you about this. And so I have some questions for you. So you ready for my I'm, questions? I'm ready for all the questions about this Okay. Movie. First of all, I want to know, when you when you did the screening at Alamo Draft House and people didn't like it, did they were they just like, I hate it? Or did anyone have a conversation with you about <laughs> like specifically like what was it that because I think there's a lot to love in this. I can see why pe- I can see why the film doesn't work for some people. <laughs> well, what's interesting is what often happens in my and this has happened a lot in my life. And this is a thing that my friends have described to me as being very endearing but i, I kind of look at it as sort of sad from my point of view but like i will show people excitedly whether it's a full theater which this was or a full living room a movie that i think is funny we're watching the movie and then i am definitely laughing hysterically through the whole thing and then i'm the only person <laughs> laughing hysterically from the whole thing. This happened when I saw The Love Guru in the theater. This happened when I sh- tried to show all my friends Dana Carvey's Master of Disguise. This happened when I tried to show <laughs> my good friend's Grandma's Boy. Like, this keeps happening in my life where I'm like, oh my god, it's so good. And then all my friends are like, we didn't think that movie was funny, but we were sure amused watching you love this movie so much, Brian. And that's sort of what happened with Walter Napier, where I'm like, the whole time, like, Lo- loving it like loving it because i'm a very vocal lover of movies and theaters like i like to like i laugh loud like i get really excited and i think that i was the a man alone <laughs> my wife loves this movie too so there i'm not totally alone on this but like i think the other people they didn't think it was funny 
They thought it was strange. Uh, I showed it to my writing partner, good friend Zach. He hated it. Like, he just hated it. Thought it was stupid. Did not understand it. A lot of people just kind of left kind of confused by, like, what? I don't really understand what that was. Uh, and there was some polite, like, yeah, okay, yeah. And <laughs> but they all agreed that they were happy that I love it so much. Well, oh, wait, wait, wait. But I, I, that's, that's all fine and good. But what I'm curious about is it's, no one was like, Oh, well, I was bought like I didn't I don't like acapella groups. No, no, it really was I, just I hate Dennis Quaid or her. No, it was it felt no. like a gut reaction for them. It was just it was just like an automatic recoil of like, no, I do not like that movie or just sort of like a pat on the back of like, good for you, Brian. You like that movie. OK. And it's like, I think they didn't want to hurt my feelings, maybe, <laughs> but I did not. I was not able to get from people the actual words as to what it was about it that they did not like about this movie i mean it's not i what i like about this movie is that to me it's not like any other movie like it has elements certainly of other movies but like just the tone that this movie goes for and i really feel it's kind of that vince gilligan tone in a way which works for other people for like breaking bad but just like it's it does come across as, as mean i guess sometimes <laughs> but <laughs> There's a humor to it. And like, this was also in his X-Files episodes that he wrote, like the way he writes people being mean to each other and the way he has people kind of have mental breakdowns or the way their brains break all within sort of a plot that is more fantastic than reality. Like it's clearly not a reality. Like I don't think Breaking Bad takes place in any sort of reality. It definitely feels like a heightened reality. And I feel like he really excels at that as a writer. And I feel this movie I mean, this is the first thing of his that was ever made. <clears throat> kind of lives in that world. And and just like with Breaking Bad, seeing really good actors kind of in this crazy world is really exciting to me. So seeing like someone as brilliant as Deborah Winger and Arliss Howard and Dennis Quaid in this crazy concoction, this, this whatever genre mashup this movie is, is really fun to me. And to other people... They just find it really stupid or they don't understand. Why is this happening? Why, why does the plot have them have pyrokinesis? Why is that? What is in? Why couldn't this be a romantic movie about these brothers? It could. Well, that's, you know? a, well, that's, that's, <laughs> I'm sorry. That's a dumb question. I mean, it's a film. It's called Wilder Napalm. It's about fire. Of course. Like yeah. that's like that. Then you want another movie. And and, like, the, and there's so many scenes in this movie, we get into it, where I watch these scenes and I get really, really excited. Really excited about filmmaking. Really excited about what you can do with a movie, like with symbolism. Like this movie hits you over the head with it, but in a way that I just think is great. And again, like when I show it to people, I'm the one jumping up and down back. Oh, that scene is, oh, that's so, there's so much there. And everyone else kind of looks at me like, I don't really, I'm not, I'm not connecting with what you're seeing. <laughs> Okay, well, I want to get into some of these scenes. Okay. So let me just tell you. So my my take on it, my big take on it, and this is this is tough for me because I don't, I, I really don't like saying this, but having watched it a second time, I really think Deborah Winger is very bad in this movie. Hmm. I I really I have a great fondness for Deborah Winger, but watching it this time, I just was like, oh my god. Deborah Winger is acting class bad in this. Some of her monologues, they just, it's not, they don't seem like a, a, a person. They seem like an actor saying lines. And 
it happens several times, like two or three times when it re- when it goes to just her. Like there's something about the way she plays her character. Hmm. Like I just feel like she, like the film loses me at the point when it's supposed to grab me in her, the sort of her magical place. And I'm not saying she's not like when she's actually interacting with other actors, then she's good. Even though some of the choices she makes as a character make her pretty unbelievable. But I think all of that would have worked. I'll, I think what I'll, I think I'll drop one of these scenes in here just for people to like hear what I'm talking about. And then you can make your own decision. Wilder, I'm sorry I broke your trust. (laughs) I guess what I did was sort of reactionary. I mean, yesterday was my first night of freedom and you had to spend it calling bingo. Oh, don't get me wrong, bingo's great. (laughs) Normally I'd say bingo's where it's at. (sighs) I guess I just got a little crazy. I got selfish. I figured I'd steal you away from squinting at a bunch of ping pong balls all night. I figured I'd get you out on the town for once, for one night of real life. One night of freedom from that country western version of a Soviet gulag. Well? Wilder, are you gonna say something? If you think that that was um if that was good or bad but i i really do and i think then i think deborah winger is a a, a great actress so a, a great actor and so it's i don't like saying that i don't like saying this it feels <laughs> it feels shitty especially because her character is is one that we're supposed to feel great fondness for and i had to have sympathy for her plight she should be the most sympathetic character in this film and unfortunately, because of her, because of Deborah Winger, I don't think it is. I wonder if it's because maybe this is not the genre she should be working in, like a quirky comedy, as opposed to Terms of Endearment, an officer and a gentleman. Like maybe this is not the type of world that she can thrive in as a performer. Who knows? Maybe it's working with her husband. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, good to mention. So this is her and Arliss Howard are married in real life. They have children. Uh, they're an actual married couple, which is uh, interesting. Uh, <laughs> and I, yeah. I don't know if they met while they started making this movie or if they were already together. But uh, I think they were already together. But they're they're still together, so good good for them. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, they're I, I like Deborah Winger as a person, and like as an actor. I just I'm I'm a real I root for her. That's why it was so hard. Like I had to really. I had to force myself to come to this conclusion really watching this film. Like, if I wasn't watching this to talk about it, I probably would have decided that I just didn't like the film. Because I'd rather not like the film than not like Deborah Winger's performance. But Mm -hmm. the truth is, I don't like Deborah Winger's performance in this. So, (laughs) that said, there's a lot in this film that I did really enjoy. And I'm looking forward to hearing you talk about the highlights I have some things in here that uh, that I that I like to talk about, but uh, well, one thing I'll just I, 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 at the end of my notes. I don't know if you noticed this, but I was looking at the credits. Ricky J. Yeah, Pyro Magic. Film. 
Pyro Magic by Ricky Jay and Michael Weber. The, so. And the effects in this movie are great. Like considering this is like pre. No, no, they are. They are. So like when I mean I enjoy and, them, but they're not great. Like all the fire stuff, all the explosions. There's an amazing scene, maybe the best scene, one of the best scenes in the movie, when there's like a fiery moment between uh, Dennis Quaid and Deborah Winger at a golf in a mini golf course, and yeah. their their passion, you know, because he has pyrokinesis. Their passion becomes visual in terms of like a kid's ice cream melts and like the things just start exploding and bursting in flames and all of that looks amazing. And I don't know like which of that is the pyromagic Ricky Jay did or was it like the fingers that light up or just like the little balls of fire and stuff like I think all of that looks fantastic. Like if this was all CG fire, it would have not worked as well for me. But the fact that there's actual fire and actual things exploding that makes it all the more thrilling. Um. <laughs> yeah, I I, uh, I have to say, I mean, yes and no. Uh, that scene, I the scene in the in the where they light the fire with their kissing was really. I thought that was great. Even on the first watch, I thought that was great. But there are some of the effects that I think are pretty cheesy. The uh, one. Just there's a there's a bit where Deborah Winger, who always dresses in green and paints her cigarettes green. I'm not really explained where she wants Quaid and uh, Arliss Howard's characters to light her cigarettes with their pyrokinesis. And the cigarette clearly has a little sparkler thing on its tip. That goes on like it's so clearly a doctored cigarette that has been set up to go, psst, you know, and I, I'm just, uh, you know, hey, it was, it was the 80s. Uh, it's not it's not they, they're working with what they have. But I, I since you made a point of saying that they're great, I have to say if you're watching this and you don't think you're that they're as great as Brian does, I, I agree with you. <laughs> I've seen this movie so many times and I've never noticed what you just talked about. Yeah, if you when he goes to light her cigarette, it doesn't light like a cigarette. It lights like a sparkler. Well, maybe that's just how his special thing works. <laughs> maybe it's uh, then why doesn't that work when the other when the why doesn't everything else turn into a spark? No, it's that's the way that maybe that's the way it works, but that's also the way it works if you put a sparkler tip that is set is a pyrotechnics to go <laughs> off at the end of a cigarette. Well, you know, none of this and is real. It's a movie. <laughs> I'm just saying that if it was great work, then it would look like the cigarette just lit. But it doesn't look like well, the cigarette lit. Take- it looks like the, someone put a sparkler, the sparkler stuff on the edge of a cigarette and lit it. <laughs> well, take it up with Ricky J. <laughs> he did the pyro magic. In my mind, those, in my mind, those are the trick cigarettes that magicians use all the time, where they do that trick. Yeah, and maybe because when usually a magician does it, you're not right next to them with a camera on stage. You're like a little bit away in the audience, so it looks more exciting. So they did. Maybe they should have altered it to be a little more for the cinema. Just put a little green screen nub on the end of that sparkler tip and digitally erase it, and it'd be fine. <laughs> okay, so. <laughs> Let's get, having gotten that out of the way, uh, let's. I feel like the opening of this film is 
like when this film starts, if the film stayed where it starts, I feel like people would love it because the opening scene is and into the credits is just I'm grabbed. I am so grabbed. So you want to talk talk about this opening scene? You must love it. I love it. And this is what it got me like immediately because I didn't when watching this movie and everyone, please watch the movie before you listen to this, like with any of our episodes, because we're just going to spoil everything. Um, I didn't know that Dennis Quaid was a clown for so much of this movie. <laughs> I didn't know he's a clown at all. Cause on the cover of the box of the video, it's just a handsome looking Dennis Quaid holding Deborah Winger. So the first, the, the, the very first scene is like, you're at this carnival and you're kind of just see the back of a clown as he's shooting his finger, like a gun into the air, zapping flies like a bug zapper. So instantly you're like, okay, that's a weird trick. And then Jim Varney as a carny, classic, brilliant casting, <laughs> just talking to this guy. They're trying to, they're kind of talking about this guy's career and sort of like there's like he made this this special suit. And while they're having this conversation, it's at night and it kind of feels sinister and you don't know why. There's just kind of like a weird, like the tone is just sort of like it feels kind of like a beginning of a horror movie or like not a comedy. Doesn't it? It really made me feel like. Uh, something wicked this way comes. Yeah, it has that sort of like is it's yeah it's sort of sweet but scary. Yeah, but it's a carnival. But it, like it's just <laughs> ooh, it's such a good tone. It really. <laughs> and then a little yeah. bratty kid shows up, uh, and basically is just being a little shit. <laughs> and then it reveals that the clown is Dennis Quaid, and then he sticks his finger out like a gun to the kid and pulls the trigger of his hand and you expect like oh no is he gonna, is he gonna kill this kid and then every, and everyone around is sort of like jim varney is like they're all kind of in the snake lady are kind of like is this is he gonna kill this kid and then he doesn't but he does let out a like crazy evil laugh there's <laughs> a clown so if anyone has any clown phobias out here this probably isn't the movie for you but it's Dennis Quaid just having his evil laugh as a clown. And then it goes to this big credit sequence. <laughs> this big sounding music. just like, a, And it's it's intense sounding. It does, none of it is really showing its hand. Oh, nothing, yeah. Nothing is showing its hand as this being a comedy at all. It's just sort of like, oh. No, this the the music, the opening credits, the the music, that, that scene. And then that you just think you are in for a very... Very serious movie. <laughs> that Wilder Napalm, the the opening, and you see sort of like sunspots or whatever, like just over. The- <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's so intense and it's great. It's just it kind of sets you up for a letdown <laughs> in the first ten minutes after this. Oh, and I want to point out the the music is by Michael Kamen, who I believe did Brazil. I think he did the soundtrack to Brazil, if I'm not mistaken. So like very good soundtrack from him. Especially the opening credits song. Okay, so we're in the we get to the to the parking lot and the photo booth and all of this intensity. Now it gets and and we could still be a very intense, scary movie because it's just a guy alone in his. You know, this is the setup of the movie. It's been intense, and now this there's this guy alone in his uh, in his booth. And at that point, do we see that he's reading about? Uh, firehouse weekly yeah. or firehouse yeah. journal or and 
basically that that's when we are introduced to Deborah Winger. He goes home. It's Arliss Howard. And he goes home and he meets Deborah Winger, who really wants to get it on. <laughs> Talk about this. <laughs> she she's under house arrest, so she's at home all day. And she <laughs> a lot of what she likes to do is start little fires just so her husband can come home early. Like basically to come home and just be there. Uh, she'll just start a little brush fire or something. Just like a little, like, I don't know what happened. And then all the firemen came because he's also a volunteer fireman. And then he's home and she's like, oh, thanks. You're home now. And everyone's like, okay, this happened. It seems like it happens on a weekly basis, according to these people. But she just like, she has a fire for her husband. Like she just wants to have sex constantly. Maybe it's because you're just home all the time and you're bored and this is what you want. But she, <laughs> this is what she wants. And he, you know, and <laughs> he just kind of reluctantly sometimes like, oh, okay, I guess here we go again. And, you know, it's, <laughs> it's interesting. Well, actually, let's, let's back up. Let's back up. He, he's not just let's go again. He's sort of like, he's immediately like, she's like, let's go do it on the roof. And he's like, no, we're like not going to do it How about just a bed? He's... Can we do it like a normal person? Yeah. So he's like the conservative <laughs> one who doesn't want to, you know, and she's the wild yeah. one. And this is when it's revealed uh, in a scene that might be off-putting to some people, but is also very, I think, is is, is sweet. Uh, she's like, "Can I do? Can I take? Can I do it?" And he's like, "Yes, you, uh, do you have to?" And we don't know what it is, but then she takes off his wig, and he has burns all over his head, and she kisses the burns on mm. his head, and it's sweet and it's kinky and like th- this opening is very. Like, she's a highly sexual person. This is a very sensual scene. And it will come back later. But uh, they do eventually. She does convince him to have sex with her. Uh, so good good on them. <laughs> and But there is a moment here that I, uh, I do have to... I, as I was watching in the second watching, I was like, what is taking me out of this? Well... The fact that they go and have sex on top of a canopy on a bed and then all we see is them falling through the canopy at the end. Now, I don't know if you understand. Like, I don't think this film understands the physics of a canopy. (laughs) Two people can't be having sex on a canopy. Two people couldn't be on top of a canopy without it without it collapsing. It was it's a weird choice. It bothers me. (laughs) Did that bother no, you? Obviously no, I didn't, I didn't. Has anyone mentioned no, never, that to you? I never even thought about it. <laughs> really? No. You know? It's a weird choice, though. As I pointed out to you, it is a weird choice. Like, how would that even Maybe work? they're really calm about it, and then they aren't. Maybe if you lay really still and slow on a canopy, it'll hold you for a little bit, and no, then it'll break. It's <laughs> No. No, you can't. You cannot sit on a canopy without a like one person gets on a can if you can show me the canopy that can hold even one person just sitting still, I will eat a whole box of clowny cereal. Okay, so it's been great sex. We can see on their face Arliss Howard's character is feels great about it. She feels great about it. They're in love. It's wonderful. But then in the morning, Deborah Winger has one of her bad monologues 
talking to Arliss Howard about his about her dream, uh, her Elvis dream, and she does a very bad Elvis impression when she's talking. Like, I, I really, I, I really, this is one of this is like a weakness. I feel like of the director, like it's not because Deborah Winger is a great actor. She, she was allowed to be bad in this in a way that like. Don't don't make her do the Elvis impression. <laughs> if she's not, she can't do an Elvis impression. Just have change change this this dialogue so that she doesn't have to do that. <laughs> yeah, I don't really know what's going on there, but uh, but basically the point is we find out that she's as you said she's frustrated because Arliss Howard in in the dream of Elvis she's with Elvis, but Elvis won't ever go on stage, and Arliss Howard's character is Elvis. And he's like, oh, ma'am, I'll just rather keep parking these cars. <laughs> uh, and so we kind of get a sense that she, like, even though they've just satisfied each other, she is not satisfied with Arliss Howard in some way. Like, she loves him, but she's frustrated that he's not more of something. Maybe more like Dennis Quaid's character. Do you want like I I, I kind of want to get to the next thing, which is I think where you're going to where it's more fun <laughs> when the when the carnival comes to town. But do you want to do you have anything to say about the Deborah Winger, Arliss Howard relationship in this film? <laughs> I I agree that I feel it is definitely the weakest thing of this movie is the, the stuff around her character. I don't know if that's a Vince Gilligan thing, because definitely in Breaking Bad, the weakest characters are the women in that show they're not as like i feel like when he's writing he finds it more fun to write men than women so the women don't get quite the good writing in a strange way but also that i think the stuff with her character with vita that's also when it's a little and i can see why maybe this turned people off when watching this movie that's when it definitely lays on the quirk where it's like she's wearing green and she does this and it definitely in a way feels slightly like a different movie than the rest of the movie like it definitely feels more like a, too, like a quirky thing. There's something kind of overtly quirky about her stuff. I think they thought it was going to come off as cute or something, and it doesn't really work. Because like you said, the green doesn't really make sense. I don't really understand it. It doesn't really click. It's still like, why is everything green? I don't really under get that symbolism or the character thing. Why is she so horny all the time? I guess it's because she's home. And there's definitely like a big hole in her backstory in a way like they eventually tell you why she was under house arrest but i think if they kind of leaned more into her being like obsessed with setting fires and of course she falls in love with someone who can set fires with his mind like that would definitely make the character more interesting so i agree that she is like there's something about that character that's like the weakest link of this movie but it doesn't bother me so much that it takes me out of loving this movie but I definitely can see that. Yeah. I think uh, that I imagine that's a turnoff for a lot of people is her stuff. Because, well, so, so after this, then we go to, we go back to the, to the parking lot. And this is when the, the carnival arrives. Yeah. And this is great. <laughs> and it's all shot with these kind of crazy angles and there's like a part where the carnival's using this one plug to plug in all their shit. <laughs> and it keeps sort of shorting out <laughs> Arliss Howard's AC unit, his little AC unit and his little photo mat. 
and he then he has like the camera like goes like over him like crazy crane shot as he walks across the parking lot to you know unplug and replug and it's weird i don't know if you thought this but like the way the humor is here the way it's shot the way it's lit all the stuff kind of in the parking lot and the photomat reminded me a lot of the beginning of joe of joe versus the volcano you know what i'm talking about like there's something about that kind of the mm-hmm. way I don't know if it's all like this kind of post Tim Burton, the way people kind of do strange like comedy movie, but it has this sort of like strong filmmaking with these big, this kind of using cinema and big angles. And then there's these weird little moments and, you do, and it definitely feels like not reality and the way the music is and stuff. It also kind of reminds me of some of that earlier, better Robert Zemeckis stuff, like pre Forrest Gump Zemeckis, where he can do like a death becomes her, there's this like in the tone. There's something yep. in that tone, yep. and this whole movie kind of dips in and out of that tone. But like these parts, just feels like there's something. Yeah, it's just it's like almost like a fairy tale sort of thing, but for grownups. And like having this carnival just literally show up out of nowhere, like boop, they just pull in, and it's funny of like. So no one told Arliss Howard's character that there was going to be a carnival. You think like the landlord <laughs> would have told him like, by the way, I know you're alone most of the time but an entire carnival is just going to drop on you because i can't they can't just show up anywhere and set up shop they had to have had gotten permission it sure <laughs> seems like that's what they're doing and so, it actually seems like that's what they're and doing. then this is great this is when you really get some dennis quaid so dennis so dennis oh, quaid yeah. comes out dressed as a clown being a total asshole there's a part where alice howard just says like you're 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 a shit wallace and then dennis quaid just kind of goes Yes, I am. <laughs> and it's just like, this is some good smirking. Like, this is Dennis Quaid having a great time. Great time. And it's funny because uh, Glenn uh, Gordon Karen did Clean and Sober with uh, Michael Keaton a few years before this movie. And it's just funny because thinking about Michael Keaton, like I, in my mind, in another world, Dennis Quaid could have totally been Beetlejuice based on his performance in this movie. <laughs> can't, can't you see that like the way yeah and and yeah. maybe this is where also lose people but it gains my love is i love an actor that really wants to ham it up and go big especially when they're usually not allowed to in movies and oftentimes people will just hate that but when dennis quaid does it there's something just so exciting to me being like i think this is what he wants to be doing in movies but nobody but he looks like the all-american guy that he's just cast as like the all-american guy and isn't allowed to play these kind of crazy (laughs) characters and his whole swagger in this beginning is great because he's acting like a tough guy acting like you know i don't give a shit guy but he's dressed as a clown with these big floppy shoes and just he's doing a lot of posturing as if he's a hot shit but dressed as a clown the whole time. And that just to me makes it even funnier. And, and the fact that he's backed up by just like this gang of carnies laid by, led by Jim Varney. It's just, there's something like so good where I'm watching this being like, this could be a TV show. Why isn't this a Vince Gilligan show about some crazy group of carnies with this like shitty clown? <laughs> like that's... Oh, yeah. like the way that the, the way they introduce the carnies when they show up and they just show one carny and he spits his gum into the other carny's <laughs> mouth, then they smile and wave at them. It's like, whoo boy, that is Yeah. <laughs> that that one little bit says a lot. It's and just I... like it's a, yeah. establishing world. And this is when yeah. I really this is 
I'm really excited about Arliss Howard in these parts too, because you can just feel his seething hate for his dumb brother. That he hates his brother and just seeing them kind of like hate each other is so good. <laughs> and just written. Like, <laughs> yeah. Let, let me get in on, on a little bit of the Dennis Quaid love here though, for this. Cause I, I have to say, I find maybe this is another one of the things that throws people off in this film. I find Dennis Quaid so much more sympathetic in the clown makeup <laughs> than as the love interest in this movie. The times when I like him the least is when he's supposed to be the handsome yeah. guy wooing Deborah Winger. The times when I like him the best is when he's a clown. <laughs> and the times in the in the mid the best part of this movie is when there's this other guy in the middle of that that he shows just a couple of times and we'll get to it. And that's where I feel, that's where I feel like, Oh, Quaid is fucking great. I'm with you. I'm not always totally like, I, I'm not always as sympathetic to, it's funny. You the films you talked about, the big, easy, great balls of fire. And this, I remember I, again, I was in Hollywood at the time when Dennis Quaid was on his run of, I'm a major movie star. And that was kind of, my least favorite part of Quaid's career. I, <laughs> I, I thought he was great in films before, like in uh, Breaking Away yeah. and other things. But um, I guess this, yes, him as a clown. I wish, honestly, maybe the film would have done better if on the poster it had Dennis Quaid as a clown <laughs> and Arliss Howard holding his <laughs> wife, Deborah Winger. And it would have been great if he was just the clown the whole movie, which I was when I first saw this movie, I was like, I hope he's the clown the whole movie. And like, why not? Why not? Sadly, that's not the case. But yes. Oh, man. Yes. Okay. uh, Do you like any like like last 20 years of Quaid? Like I watched Cold Creek Manor is great. The Mike Figgis movie with him and Sharon Stone. Have you seen that movie? Like he is so good in that movie that that's sort of like. A weird thriller sort of horror movie where it's Dennis Quaid and Sharon Stone going out to the country to live after a horrible tragedy and just being fucked with by the locals. And it's and it's like, and it, if you don't like snakes, don't watch this movie. It's really weird. It's really good. Uh, he's really, and he's really great in it. And he's like, like definitely gets into some bigger, interesting stuff. Uh, Horseman is really weird. That's a good movie. Did you ever see Horseman? That's a strange one. No, I'm looking. I'm trying to. I, I'm. I'm all all the way back to 2008 on his IMDb, and I haven't seen one film. Oh, I saw him in the day after tomorrow, <laughs> in 2004. The uh, the most recent one that he's amazing in is The Intruder, which is from 2019, and that's like a crazy thriller where he is menacing this young black couple. And it's amazing. <laughs> and his performance is great. And it just feels like that good kind of early 90s hand that rocks the cradle sort of fatal attraction thriller. But with an old Dennis Quaid just ruining these people's, this, these, these poor people's lives. And that's also worth checking out. He's just, I don't know. There's something about him that like in recent and years, I'm kind of like rooting. I'm always rooting for Dennis Quaid. I feel like. Nicholas Cage, I love him. He gets enough love, but nobody is giving Dennis Quaid the love because I think they're not watching the right things. And yeah, Breaking Away is great too. Like he is just, or Gorp, he's really good. In, you ever seen Gorp? <laughs> I've seen Garp. 
I've never seen Gorp. <laughs> Gorp, he's really going for it in Gorp as well. Uh, just when he can go into a little crazier territory or be funny, there's something about it that is really exciting to me. And this movie, to me, is like the pinnacle of it. Um, oh, no, no, no. I know the last thing I saw that was great, he's in the most recent season of Goliath, which is a series, the Billy Bob Thornton series. I've never and seen I that. I love that series. Oh, yeah, that's like that's like damages. It's one of those series where every uh, every season, the actors are great. Like there's a like there's a there's one season of Goliath that has William Hurt. Ooh, and one of the best things I've seen him do. And if you're into Dennis Quaid, he's great in this. I will have yeah. to watch it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um. Okay, yeah. Well, I, I I gotta say I have I am not as up on the late era, uh, Dennis Quaid as you are. So uh, maybe it's, we can inspire a, a a resurgence. I think that I think it's time. I think now is time because like Randy Quaid gets all the credit for being the wild one, and in real life, I feel he is. <laughs> in reality, Randy Quaid is the more wild one. Uh, but. I don't know. Like Dennis Quaid, he came into Vulcan once and rented movies. Uh, very nice man. And uh, I don't know. I just feel like people, I think in their heads, think, oh, he's kind of boring or he's a straight guy or he's just like, you. I don't know. Like, they kind of remember him as being so like, oh, you're just like this all American, you know, you're just a guy in a movie. But it's like, no, no, no. Like watch, really dig into some Dennis Quaid and you'll see that he's actually a very, oh, Far From Heaven. He's great in that too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like he is a one of my favorite actors, and will always be, and I'm always going to be excited about what he has to offer. Uh, anyways, back back to this movie, um, and we'll be talking about him later uh, in an in an upcoming episode when we talk about September 30th, 1955. Is he in that movie? Yes, he is. Well, gosh. <laughs> I guess Maybe I sh- you're more excited to watch this film than you were before. I, I am now. I had no idea. <laughs> I didn't know that. Well, yeah, there you go. Um. <laughs> and the Long Riders. Uh, yeah, the, oh, the yeah, early stuff. Yeah. Caveman. I fucking love he, Caveman. And he's great at Caveman. Caveman uh, is a movie maybe we should do. I love that movie. <laughs> and you're right. We should do Caveman. Caveman's really good. <laughs> okay. So this, so this movie, so this scene with the two brothers... It basically kickstarts the next part of the movie, which is sort of now Wilder's life has been thrown off because his his brother's in town with the carnival. His brother has big dreams of going public with the pyrokinesis. He wants to be in David Letterman, and Jim Varney is making him this special suit so he can like set things on fire safely. And Wilder doesn't the suit, by the way, is hilarious. <laughs> it's like it kind of looks like tinfoil, and it's kind of like a big spaceman, no. like homemade spaceman-y sort of. No, no, this the tinfoil. That's the that's the for the assistants. Oh no, no the his suit. suit yeah, for, it's like a weird spandex type. Like, with like a, a, with looks his, like a wetsuit in a way. <laughs> but it really accentuates his junk and his butt, which gets played up later on. <laughs> it is such a like. Weird, like gross, sexy man suit. Perfect for this character. Yeah, yeah. it really is. And it's another clown suit. So he wants to, it is. So he wants to, so Wallace wants to go public with it, wants to be world famous. But, you know, and Wilder is like, no, 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 no. Like, we, like, and he and Wilder will, like, 
you know, it took a lot for his wife to get him to light a cigarette. Like he does not want anyone to know that he has his power. He does not do anything with it. Uh, there's a, the reason why he's burned up is when they had this big blowout a few years back, they were throwing Dennis Quaid's characters thrown fire at him. And Wilder refused to partake in it and just took the blows and just moved on with his life. So the idea of his brother going big with it is sort of like, he can't fathom why he would do that. He's like, you will be studied by the government. Like no one is like, you're not going to be champion. People are going to like fear Haven't you. Haven't you seen Firestarter? <laughs> Haven't you seen Firestarter? And, uh, and, and then that, but the, so then the movie gets into this thing where he, Dennis Quaid characters showing up in Wilder's life constantly. And Wilder does not want him around. And oh, wait, wait, the, wait, wait, can, can we back up for a second? Cause there was a, there was something, so what is it with 80s, the 80, 1980s and women and cellos? Because that's another <laughs> thing that they give Deborah Winger. It's Randomly, because it's not they, in any other part of the movie. Susan Sarandon plays a cello in Witches of Eastwick to show that she is repressed. There was the woman from Fame, yeah, which Glenn Gordon Karen, the director of this, also worked on Fame. Maybe uh, maybe he has a fetish for women. Maybe there's something about the stance that they have to have their body and legs. Well, yeah, no, I mean it's cl- it's yeah, it's, it's sexual. clearly it's obvious, <laughs> and that's it. Like, I, they, the scene where she's playing the uh, the cello, she gives the cinematically the film tells us she gave herself an orgasm. Like she doesn't <laughs> completely go into Meg Ryan in the diner <laughs> mode. But she definitely is like she finishes and then she sort of is like, oh, my. Like she gives herself a, there's this look of like, wow, wow. I just I didn't know I could. And that's when smirking, not clowned Dennis Quaid's face shows up behind her. And <laughs> I there is something that is I think it, maybe it's part of what it's interesting about him. He's he's hateable. He's a hateable leading man. Like he like it's like Nicholson kind of, but Nicholson has something out like Dennis Quaid's too handsome. I don't know. It's something about him. Like when he shows up in the in the door there, I'm not excited. I'm like, and uh, this is something I should say. This is my own thing that I bring to it. This is a film. It's all about jealousy. I really don't like films about jealousy. That really bugs me. So that's another hurdle. I think the pyrokinesis and the clowning and all that stuff really helps. And the incredible <laughs> cinema. Like, you, you're right. Cinematically, this is a very, very cinematic film. Yeah. All practical um, effects. And even though I <laughs> quibble with how some of them look, it's just constant. Yeah. It's constantly doing it's, interesting it's stuff. It's a very visually. stylish movie, which is funny because I don't think any other movie by uh, uh, Karen is like that. Like, you've seen Love Affair. You've seen Clean and Sober. Those look more kind of straightforward dramas like it seems like this movie's the odd man out you know like i haven't uh, seen clean and sober but i have seen picture perfect the it, jennifer aniston film that he did you never saw so. love affair with your love affair oh no i Warren did Beatty. see love affair <laughs> oh yeah no i've seen love affair several times it's uh we can talk well <laughs> we should we should talk about that. Let's talk about that towards the end in our, in our okay, wrap up. Sure. Because uh, we don't want to go down the Warren Beatty uh, <laughs> so, trail. So basically, like, the, 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 like a sort of, you know, rekindling of the relationships goes starts between Vida and Wallace. 
So let's just back up. So set the scene. So she, Dennis Quaid shows up, and then they're up on the top of the. Uh, they live in a tra- She lives in a trailer. Uh, they live in a trailer park, and th- they're up on the top of the trailer, and they're just talking. And uh, Arliss Howard comes home with all of his firemen and all their firemen's gear, and he, you can tell he's like, "What the fuck? This is not good." And Deborah Winger being in her sort of charming whatever green fairy character she is she says hey boys you're gonna catch me and then she throws herself backwards off the trailer into their arms and it's like a disney movie it's like <laughs> it's, I, I i know where you're getting to but there's like there's several pieces before that i, I like hit arliss howard's eventual turn uh there's there's this whole setup with him well, I'm sorry. I don't mean to 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 take charge of how you're handling this movie, but I guess I kind of am, if you, <laughs> if you don't mind. Because uh, because because uh, yeah, this the this part is some of the most exciting part. So they uh, they end up in the trailer. First of all, they get a lot of people into this trailer. <laughs> I feel a like whole that fi- shot. A is, whole fireman crew. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like that shot is in a kitchen somewhere that's not in that trailer, but that's fine. So and then they're all just. They're singing Duke of Earl, and they do this sort of silent dance thing yeah. with Deborah Winger dancing and Dennis Quaid and Arliss Howard <laughs> just making looks at each other. It's so good, and it's it it is it's this is one of those things where if you know we've we talked in Frank about how it's sort of the perfect tone of it allows it to get away with some stuff that would be iffy and other things yeah i feel like this is the for me the opposite of that like this is something that is great on its own and as we're talking about it i'm realizing how much i love it but in context because of my own hurdles to it and because of the other stuff i could see how someone might miss out on what's so great about this (laughs) so what i would say is while you're watching this film if you're turned off like i hope that this can be like uh you know, it's it's a, a term we're using in the in the age of COVID, a prophylaxis. Like if you like if you didn't like this film, you could use this as a prophylaxis going into this again and be like, <laughs> oh, I know why I why you might not like this film, but this scene is one of those scenes that just on its own, all of these actors doing this, it's pretty great. In, yeah. Right up to her realization of what's going on. <laughs> yeah. Which is what really makes it work. It's so, yeah. The performances from all three, I think, are really good in the scene. And it's just like, yeah, with this weird, like, oh, all these firemen are singing? Okay. And it's, it's, a, great, and, it's a great little moment. And one of the things that's also been established here is that, our, that uh, Wilder is a terrible fireman. Dangerous. Whenever he's fighting fires, he's flashing back on the time that he and Wallace yeah. burned down Horace Braintree's shack, and which that, was a traumatic event. And those flashbacks are traumatic. Like there's not comedy, and like that feels like also another movie where it's like this. They're kind of it's sad and scary and upsetting, like them being kids and getting into something bad. They're really interesting tonally from the rest of the movie. <laughs> and uh and and this is also we we haven't talked about this is M Emmett Walsh is uh is this is he plays the fire chief. Yeah. And also the police chief? <laughs> is he I can't I couldn't tw- quite tell the police and the fire department 
are sort of well, like they work together in this small town. Yeah. Um, but he's not there at the Duke of Earl singing. He he's not one of the, he's not one of the singers. That would be awesome if M. Emmett Walsh <laughs> was one of the duop singers. That would be fantastic. Uh, so uh, I want to make there's one thing I noticed. Dennis Quaid lies about Horace Braintree and his shack because in their their argument, he says you know Horace Braintree doesn't even care anymore. But we see in the flashbacks that Horace Braintree was burned to a crisp. Uh, <laughs> so yeah e- so either either and just if you take this seriously from the standpoint of like this was intentional either wilder his memory is incorrect which is a traumatized memory could be maybe he, he's remembering it was burned to a crisp and dennis quaid's character the uh, wallace is actually telling the truth that horace braintree is fine and what he he's he's divorced from a swimsuit model and owns a couple of buick dealerships and takes his kids to ice cream or something i don't know what, what how he says it in the film but uh what do you think do you think that <laughs> that wallace is lying to wilder or that wilder is remembering it incorrectly see how i see it when watch this movie is that wallace is lying to himself and i think he thinks it's true because he wants to think that he's this cool guy that can start fires whereas wilder knows the danger of that, which is why he stopped doing it and doesn't do it. You know, like that's kind of how I look at it is like each have their memory of it because one wants to like still do it. And the other one is like, no. So, but it could also be that they both remembered it wrong and they just remember it in the way that works for both of them and their way they're living their lives. And who knows what actually happened to Horace Braintree. Yeah. It's well, (laughs) that's that, that could have been explored in the sequel. Even wilder napalm. Wilder or napalm. Um. <laughs> and so, and then this is the heartbreaking part. I don't know. This is the part where it really is heartbreaking. So she gets released, and Wilder is just kind of shut down. Like he was already a little bit of a stick in the mud, yeah. but he's he's totally shut down. And she wants to have sex with him in his booth, and he won't for a dumb reason. And then. He wants she wants her to take some time off and he can't because for, for dumb reasons. And then the night that she's off, he's planned to uh, call bingo. And she just it's just like you just feel how like the film is trying to do everything it can to make it totally to put us totally on her side that she's about to run off with Wallace for a whirlwind evening of music and fire and kisses. And uh and I, I, I don't know. It's it's sad, and it's uh, it, uh, it. I don't know. It, this was a frustrating part of the movie for me. But I definitely felt like in these parts, I did feel Deborah Winger being the Deborah Winger that I love as an actress. Did you have that? I mean, you you're you're married. I was married. And maybe it's more complicated for me because I was married, and I recognize. I kind of be, I'm like I uh, when I watch those I'm like they're not going to stay together. <laughs> Her and Wilder. Even the, yeah, yeah. I yeah. Don't, like in yeah. real life, people who do the who treat each other like this. Well, and even in movies, a lot you know a lot the movies that are made from the standpoint of the woman about these dynamics, she does not stay with that guy. Yeah. 
So anyway, did you feel, I mean, did those, did those scenes give you the feels? (laughs) I find those scenes kind of sad just because I really like Wilder so much. And it's, Mm -hmm. and she's so quick to just jump into the arms of Dennis Quaid's character. And I don't really like Dennis Quaid's character. Like, I feel he's a bad guy. You know, he has, there's something very devilish about him, not just because he can shoot fire, but like his smirk and everything. It's just sort of like he's showing up at the town with this big show and with this big bully gang. And it's just sort of him just kind of being like pushing little Arliss Howard out of his life so he can take what he wants. So like in those scenes, I'm not feeling like, oh, I'm glad they're together. Oh, what fire. I'm more like, oh, fuck this guy. What's he doing? <laughs> well, yeah. Why is he messing with this guy's wife? And then I'm sad being like, why is she okay with this? Like, I guess because he brings this charm in this show. And that she just kind of, and like she's been home for a year. And then her husband has decided just to kind of be this dud and not bring the excitement for when she gets out of house arrest. Um, well, it's weren't uh, the Dennis Quaid. I mean, we're supposed to think, we're supposed to believe that wilder stole vida from wallace originally or whoa stole whatever yeah. that she was originally with wallace yeah and then she i mean then the, the wedding picture wallace has the bandages yeah so we got it in my imagination it's one of those things where she was she she was with wallace and she loved them both and then wallace but wallace is an asshole yeah. and wilder's a sensitive guy and when wallace burned wilder she took care of him yeah they fell in love and then they got married and Wallace probably did some fucked up shit and stormed out of town. (laughs) And now that's one of the things I got to say, going back to Quaid's performance, like each time he's like, there's several times. And one of them is when he's driving away from the first time he hangs out at the house with them. And then they have this fight outside and he talks, they talk about Horace Braintree's shack and he starts driving off. You're going to put me in the movies. They're going to make a big star out of me. They're going to put me in the movies. And all I got to do is that. And then the way that the way that goes from being a, like sort of like fuck you to someone's face like ha 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 cocky to angry in the car to like literally breaking down like you f- see the sadness that's some fucking great like that's that's like that should be a greatest hits real <laughs> Quaid I feel like that's a that's a great fucking moment yeah oh yeah no he yes uh, <laughs> so. Uh, so anyway, I, I'm trying to set up. So then they, then they, they go to, they go on this whirlwind, uh, sex and fire show. Although they don't actually have sex, but they have cinematic, they have this cinematic affair. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to get to the scene that you were talking about. Is there anything you wanted to say about Um, the, about their affair? It just, uh, it's, I don't know. I think it's a great scene is great. Like the scene in the mini, in the mini golf place is so simple in a way of like the idea of it and and they talk about bewitched so second bewitched uh for uh, yep. world is wrong and, <laughs> and uh, i don't know it just i can i just i like i just love that scene like i don't like that they're getting together i feel sorry for a little wilder but like there's somebody that scene that does totally work for me and the fact then the, the fire they cause uh <laughs> 
Arliss Howard has to put out <laughs> the fire caused by his wife and his brother. Uh, like, I just like that whole thing is great. And then it ends with that beautiful moment of them dri- driving back. And like, is that when the guy sings the song in the back of the truck? The, yeah, like, I don't want to set the world yeah. on fire. And it's yeah. just, it is so beautiful. And it's just Arliss Howard just like, and it's that part is so sad. Because it's like it's Arliss Howard. I feel realizing like what's 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 going on in a way, and just sort of like with this beautiful you know solo from one of the singing firemen, just singing it a great song, like one of my favorite songs. Who did the original version of that song? Do you know? It's one of the one of those fifties sort of sounds like doo-woppy sort of groups. Um, but I don't remember. It was like the Ink Spots or who who did... Uh... Oh, you're right. It is the Ink Spots. So yeah, that song originally done by the Ink Spots, uh, but done beautifully here. Um, I don't know if I mentioned this, but the, the, the Firemen is an actual acapella group called the Mighty Echoes. They're still a band. This is their only movie appearance. They are great. <laughs> but so that this is really... So you have this crazy... Scene of the golf course. Oh, wait, 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 wait. And, Do you think they advertise themselves as as seen in the film Wilder Napalm? No, that would serve them no benefit. I, I, I bet that, of course they do. Nobody saw this movie. That would only work for me. I would be like, oh, that's the guys. I bet they're just, you know, sad. That I, they're... I'm, sure it's, I'm sure it's in their press kit. It's on their Wikipedia page. So they, yeah. they mentioned it on whoever wrote the I'm Wikipedia sure page for the Mighty Echoes. I, I, I would love, God, I, I hope, I, w- I wish for you that someday you're walking through some town and you see a flyer for this, ba- for this band. And then it says, as seen. And I, and I storm the backstage as if they're the Beatles and I'm so excited. You're, you're like, dude, I do, I don't want to set the world on fire. I don't, they're like, oh, it's an, it's another the, wilder napalm. The, the early, yeah, another one. You mean the only one? Um, <laughs> What was with the early 90s obsession with acapella bands? Why was that a thing? Because there was also Rockapella on Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego. That was such a weird thing that like, let's, we love these groups of men with no instruments singing songs. That was a, a, a little thing that happened. It's the, the ultimate unplugged. I, yeah, I guess. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. I want to see a, they should do a plugged for these groups. You <laughs> have like the mind echoes. You have to have <laughs> instruments. That should be the new show. Plugged. Um, but, <laughs> dear mtv here's an idea for you um, so uh, uh one one other thing did you notice like this film is heavy on the references so like uh there's the john wayne yeah and i mean dennis quaid does john wayne deborah winger does elvis and then deborah winger when she's uh when dennis quaid is coming on to her first she says oh, is who are you andy hardy when he goes around to try and teach her how to play golf. And then she makes a Nelson Eddy reference, like within one paragraph, <laughs> she's making an Andy Hardy and a Nelson Eddy reference that I don't think even in 19, when this was supposed to come out in 89 or whenever it was supposed to come out, that it, <laughs> that there were a lot of people who would have got that reference <laughs> even then. Vince Gilligan, he's like a pre Tarantino with this, you know, like he was I ahead of the th- curve with the pop culture references in a movie. That's what I'm kind of getting at. There's a way, if you look at it just right, that you can see this as being not an influence, but on the 
leaning towards the same thing that Tarantino's going to, the, the code that Tarantino's going to crack. Yeah. There's things in this film that feel like. Yeah. And again, especially for you, because Jim Varney is kind of your John Travolta. <laughs> yeah. And like it has the thing where it's playing with genre convention. It's taking this idea of like Firestarter, which was only not even you know 10 years before this, the movie and the book. Yeah. That it's sort of like, and the movie references, like openly references, yeah, like Firestarter. It's not even pretending that it exists in a world that doesn't have Firestarter. It's just like these characters know what Firestarter is and they have the same abilities as Drew Barrymore's character from Firestarter. And you're right. There's this sort of like, and then like the weird... Yeah, the music, they're, they're having this acapella group in there. Like, there's a lot of this movie that feels sort of like pre where the 90s went more successfully. Like, the interludes of the singing remind me very much of like something about Mary and some of the Fairly Brothers stuff. And, and like, the, when the guys sing over the end credits, that feels sort of like the end of a Fairly Brothers movie. The way it's quirky in the trailer and the way Deborah Wingers reminds me of some of that kind of later, later, later Barry Sonnenfeld stuff or like the TV show pushing mm-hmm. daisies. Remember that show pushing daisies? Mm-hmm. Like this feels like this, this movie's like trying to, it knows what's going to come, but it hasn't quite figured it out. Maybe, which is also why a lot of people get turned off by this movie. Cause it definitely, it's like the Rubik's cube is getting formed, but it's not quite all colors on every side, you know? So now <laughs> when you look at it, it just looks like a bad version of all the other things. That but it was before later. all of it. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, well, and, not and, everyone and, has Jim Varney to keep them. And like, yeah, you're casting, you you're casting Jim Varney that at the time, this was before Toy Story, before like he was in more, you know, respected things, I guess. But like, this was him just doing earnest at the time. Like this was before, I think this is pre-Beverly Hillbillies. So like this is Jim Varney. Like, you know him only as Ernest. Lowbrow movies that a lot of people do not like. And you're putting him in your movie. So like clearly people are going to automatically be like, oh, wait, Ernest, Jim Varney. So it's like they're trying or like M.M. at Walsh being in there. You know, like you have all these good people kind of thrown in the mix. Um, Yeah. And he wants to like he wants to be on Letterman. Yeah. Yeah. It's. It, it, there's this yeah there's a showbiz kind of like a very present and the and the later on i mentioned already but there's a point when he's uh when dennis quaid's sitting in the trailer and he's eating some cereal and there's been cereal eating throughout this movie i i, I if i watch it again i might want to track down like what's going on with the cereal in this film? because then there's a reveal he's looks at a box and it just says clowny's cereal on it and yeah. so they made up a new cereal called clowny's cereal put it in the scene and never mentioned it except that he looks at it and that's a very you know a, whatever yes and that on. feels very tarantino-y yes like the fake exactly. the fake product that's like working with the thing and it's clearly a fake product because no one remembers a serial called clownies but it's just there um the music on the soundtrack like the uh we'll talk about oh, the scene later Q, when they cue like, foreigner yeah when foreigner when it, like there's only <laughs> one needle drop in the whole movie and it's great yeah it totally it <laughs> puts you in the vibe of playing miniature golf yep and it, like the, kind the, of like the keyboards are eerie like you don't like it's so great (laughs) it's good and then later the tom jones song that is used i feel like that's also done really well um when they do she's a lady 
Uh, oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> and we'll get to that. We'll get to that scene. But uh, yeah, I don't know. And yeah, and then like yeah, this moment that we digress from of the guy singing "I Want to Set the World on Fire." Is that what the song's called? I don't know what the actual name of the yeah. song is. That, yeah. That part that is. two is like a good, it's not a needle drop because it's not the original song, but just placing that guy singing that song there, it just, it's so powerful. It's like, it really works really well. Um. So that's, okay. So that's when we get, he gets home. <laughs> we get well, the scene. So. And, and now this is a question. He looks up at, he's, he's goes to his, the same refrigerator where they, where they had the initial love scene mm-hmm. and he's, going to drink some orange juice looks like and as he's drinking he looks up and he sees that the roof of the trailer where deborah winger had been asking him to go and have sex with her at the very beginning is going oomp 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 like there's some there's some humping going on (laughs) it looks like it yeah it sure looks like there's some humping going on (laughs) uh and then there's i this is my this pyrotechnic effect I loved <laughs> when he and everything like all the candles in the place just start to go. Yeah. It, it, it communicates his emotion. Yeah. It's a great scene. Uh, and it's, ter- you know, you feel terrible for it, the whole thing. You know, yeah. I'm all totally triggered. during this. <laughs> and this is when <laughs> to me, this is when it clicked to me that this was written by Vince Gilligan because his reaction to this and what he does feels so much like something from Breaking Bad. So like he, mm. so basically he, he's, he's, he's building up the heat's going down. Like you don't know if the candles are melting cause he's getting angry or because they're having more sex. And it's, it's like, you can't tell like what exactly is causing Like you can read it either way. And then he goes outside. He doesn't say anything. He's cause he's like, cause he's an introverted guy. He just knocks the ladder down, abandoning them like on the roof, goes into his riding lawnmower, starts it up. And just starts driving, mowing in circles around the trailer, which then goes on all night long while they're stuck on the roof. And he just is like, he just can see his brain broke. And he's just like, can't believe that his brother's back, that he took his wife away from him or took this lady back. And he just like is driving around and his performance is great. It's like Arliss Howard really looking like a truly broken man. And it goes all into the night, into the day, and he's just still mowing the lawn and no one's able to communicate with him. And that that part, that feels very much like something that I can see uh, like Brian Cranston's character doing on Breaking Bad. Like there was that episode where he gets so mad that he throws the pizza on the roof. And that feels like something that Arliss Howard's character would have done in a fit of anger in this movie. There's something about the way people deal with their pain and frustration in the Vince Gilligan world, especially in like Breaking Bad, that this scene reminds me so much of, of that. It definitely, as you say, that makes me think of stuff from Better Call Saul. Which I've never seen. So you've seen. So this is time for your confession. Oh, shit. I thought you, I was going to get to avoid. So you've never seen Breaking Bad. I've never seen. But you've, Is it Breaking Bad or Breaking Bad? It's. <laughs> I think it's Breaking Bad. Oh, I always thought it was Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad. Uh, Breaking anyway, Bad. Yeah. Uh, Breaking Bad. I don't know. But either way, anyway, you've never, but you've seen Better Call Saul, and I've never seen Better Call Saul, but I've seen Breaking Bad. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I've never <laughs> seen. I, I I watched the first couple episodes of Breaking Bad, and I didn't. Uh, it didn't grab me, and then it became this huge phenomenon. 
and I have friends who were in it. Like there's this whole like I don't know. I you should you should give it a chance sometime. It's really good. Our our brains are weird. <laughs> I don't. I, I had this. I did the same thing with The Sopranos. Wait, have you but and you've seen that though, right? I did. I did, and I <laughs> okay. loved it. Yeah. <laughs> so I know. I know. It well. So you but you watched but you were watching Better Call Saul. Yeah, and it I love it, Bob Odenkirk. And it's not weird not knowing what happened in Breaking Bad World because I'm assuming that show references because I've never seen Better Call Saul. I I have a feeling that it it basically the way they're doing it, there it's it's so it's such a side thing from the mm. way it's been described to me mm. that I will probably have the same experience watching Breaking Bad as people who are watching Better Call Saul have with this of like, <laughs> oh. Cool. That's in the background. Like, <laughs> I, li- I like it. <laughs> but so in that show, uh, which Vince Gilligan is also the creator and writes for, like, does it have these kind of moments? Uh, Michael McKeon and Bob Odenkirk are brothers who have a very, uh, who their dynamic is totally fucked up. So when I think of those two and Wilder and Wallace, it makes a lot of sense. Like they're in they they can't if it'd be funny to see Michael McKeon and Bob Odenkirk just start shooting fire at each other if they could do it <laughs> could happen it, you know yeah. um. but the way they use the but they instead they use the law the yeah. way these guys use fire <laughs> and so then this scene uh, of him riding a lawnmower goes into the first time where you see the brothers really fight with each other with fire where they're kind of building these crazy fireballs throwing them back and forth. There's an amazing shot of Dennis Quaid getting angry and his eyes kind of go milky white and it's kind of terrifying, very, very demonic, yeah. demonic looking. And that part's very exciting <laughs> to me. It's, and I just, uh, it's, <laughs> when they get mad at each other, they call each other white, white boy. <laughs> Who's the white boy now? That also feels very Vince Gilligan. That feels like something that you would see uh, happen on his on the show. But yeah, like that's such an odd diss. If like we're gonna call each other white boy, and that is supposed to be a diss, it's great. I'm gonna st- I'm it. gonna start adapting that into real life. I think I'm gonna start calling people white boy to tell them that they're a fool. Uh, yeah, why is that? Why it's so? And then Arliss Howard's so great in this part because he's really having fun, like breaking down and getting angry and really getting yeah. into it. And yeah. I feel like this movie too, like this, like you don't see a lot of Arliss Howard acting like this in other movies. Usually he's no, very, I know. he's That's... very subdued. And like, he's one of those actors that I feel like is so much better than most of the things he's in. And people just don't know how to use him. Hey, and this is his second it, appearance. It's he right after birth. Birth. And he's great in birth, but this is exactly what you're talking about. Like the guy, the guy he plays in birth is just this grounded yeah. Like, you like him. And sympathetic. He's, he's good. But, yeah, like, but seeing him this. really go for it in this is really yeah. f- fun. And being like, I bet him and Dennis Quaid both had such a good time being like, oh, we can really kind of do this sort of performance that no one lets us do. <laughs> and never will let us do again. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. No, that that is such a great scene. Um, yeah. So... <laughs> <laughs> Basically, the movie is sort of kind of winding down at this point to the climax. Um, you, she, the wife, Vita swears that they didn't have sex, which is no way true, 
Because like you said, it looks like there's humping going on with the way that the, the ceiling is bouncing. And they're putting their clothes on and... Yeah, like may, maybe they didn't go all the way. Maybe it was just third base. <laughs> but it seems like they went to third base. I don't know. I just, you know, but... <laughs> It's <laughs> the film. It's the film is not. It's confusing there. Like it just. It. It's. A, it's not just me. When I yeah. see that, I think. Yeah. Is she lying, okay. or are we supposed to really think they didn't do it? Because it's like, is that a studio note that they didn't bother to rewrite before? Like it kind of feels like in a way of like, well, we can't have them really have sex because then that's really sad and that's really mean to the Wilder characters. How about they say they didn't, and then hopefully the audience will be, like, oh, they didn't, but they clearly did. So, so, uh, so is that is that like the misremembering of the flashback is that just a character flaw is it them just lying but they clearly they're just bad liars because clearly they did or is this but like then it, yeah it's or is confusing because like, then when they're in prison dennis quaid goes along with it like because he's like oh we would have if you hadn't got if you know so so maybe it was like clothes on but not off yet but kind of getting hot and heavy I don't, whatever make it it had hmm. to it had to make humping and make enough of a hump so that the top of a trailer would Can, go whoop 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 so maybe they were just jumping up and down so excited about how good they did at mini golf or i don't know that's possible uh, you know maybe dennis quaid is a you know a humpy maker outer you know some people are hey <laughs> nothing wrong with that <laughs> I'm just saying if everybody's okay going, with it, uh, you know, it's, I, uh, <laughs> I would rather for my sake, I would rather not believe that uh, that Deborah Winger's character is a liar. Nothing about her that says that not even that it's like that she's a, a liar, but that she would lie about this just because afterwards she's so sort of clear about like, let's all talk about this. Let's you know, she's like. I don't know. I want to believe that she's not lying, but whatever. Yeah. Maybe I'm a sucker for So, for... is there anything else to talk about before we get to the big parking lot climax? No, no, no. The, the that's the she's a lady. Yeah. Whoa, whoa, whoa. The way ready yeah. to talk about this part? So, basically everyone goes back to their jobs. He uh, you know, De- Deborah Winger character realizes that maybe she went too far with Dennis Quaid and that she does in fact love Wilder is willing to kind of give him another chance. And while he's all set, while Wilder's all set at work, he sees a note from her that she leaves with, is it with his, where does the, I forget like, what is it note with? It's, um, it's, it's just not like they put it through the, the little sticky the, note, like little, little, yeah, note, sticky notes. And it says, I'm sorry. What are the what are the fourth? I love you. I'm sorry. What did the fourth? The, there's it, four, and there's on, and we only he only sees three of them. Yeah, is it like I burn for you or something? I don't remember. Or something like that. And, anyway, uh, there's the, the fourth one says, "Meet me, come to see me at the firehouse." Yeah. But in the meantime, yeah. Dennis Quaid is playing. She's a lady and making <laughs> his trailer shake. <laughs> He's feeling good, and then this this note this note kind of gives Wilder this this realization of like oh shit like I I fucked up I need to stand up for my wife I need to stand up for myself I need to I can't let my brother do this to me anymore and he comes well, out and in he, prison Deborah Winger says to him if I walk out of here if you want me back you're gonna have to fight for me yeah and this is so, him doing it 
And it's great yeah. because they're blaring in the parking lot, Tom Jones, she's a lady. And you get Arliss Howard coming out triumphant and tough to walking, stepping to the Tom Jones song, which is really cool looking. And then it's cut short because it's him unplugging it because it's too loud <laughs> and it stops his cool moment. He, he stops his own cool moment by un, literally unplugging, stopping the song, which then <clears throat> basically kickstarts this amazing fight between <laughs> Dennis Quaid and Arliss Howard in the parking lot while the carnies are cheering on. Dennis Quaid uh, gets on his little outfit, his little tight outfit that excited you and <laughs> this way we, this is what we excite me or... <laughs> excited me uh <laughs> and they get into this you know this the great sort of fight <laughs> a big pyrotechnic fight big pyrotechnic fight um very zemeckis you're right you're right it it, this feel... part feels very zemeckis to me like good when zemeckis was good pre-force gump zemeckis even the setting it, of a big parking lot like there's this yeah a little bit of Back to the Future-y. Back to you know, the like, Future, the end of Back to the Future, a little bit of the end of like Who Framed Roger Rabbit where they're just throwing things around in that warehouse. Like Death Becomes Her. Like there's definitely something about this movie that feels like the Zemeckis that I used to love like back in the day. Uh, Pre-Oscar Zemeckis. Let's just call him that. Um. <laughs> and I guess this is where Ricky Jay really gets to shine. Yeah. With his py- with the pyro magic. And a lot so of if you thing- are a fan yeah. of Ricky Jay, this is a good place to... You know, yeah. see his craft and it's just great it's really fun and it's like it's the it's the ending that you hope this movie had because the whole movie's building up to like are they gonna actually duke it out like really like please and if it didn't happen it would be a total letdown and and this is when dennis quaid's character starts to really feel like a real villain like he start, he kind of lost his mind and does not care if he kills his brother or destroys his own carnival um <laughs> And it's very exciting. It's good. And of course, like all the characters come together, all the firemen show up, like the Deborah Winger comes in with them. So, you know, the, uh, we've, we haven't mentioned there's a gag of, uh, the sheriff constantly getting his nose broken. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like that's so weird. And so then at the very end of the movie, all the characters together, much like the end of a West, San- every Wes Anderson movie, everybody's there in the parking lot. Um, the movie wraps up and, <laughs> Then we get to hear David Letterman's voice, which I'm assuming they recorded for this movie. It's funny that they don't show him. It's not like David Letterman was like, I don't have time to be on camera, but you can hear me. Is that good enough? Because in another movie, you feel it would have like shown or maybe Dennis Quaid couldn't be there. And they were like, oh, we'll just list. We'll just have David Letterman. Like, you know, like that is weird that you don't see it. Right. That's kind of cool, though. But it is kind of cool. But I wonder if that was out of like an actual reason for it. If they always or is it always written that way? If like then you hear it while because basically it's while Wilder and Vida are watching it. Is it's sort of more from their point of view of experience as opposed to us audience watching it. So it is a nice way to. And I guess everybody's friends by the end of this movie. This should be the next Vince Gilligan TV show. Like, why can't this be a four-season show about these estranged brothers? One has a carnival. Like, right? Wilder <laughs> Napalm. That's Wilder uh, Napalm. I, just describing this movie, going through, it's made me excited to watch it again. Like, I I love this movie so much. I hope that someone out there listening to this watches this movie and has the same thrill that I have while while watching it. Well, um, 
you definitely I'm I'm glad I waited. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. I'm to have me have me be the, the hype man behind this this movie. It helps. I think. I wonder what Vince Gilligan thinks of. I've never read anything about it if he feels like embarrassed because it was his first script or if they rewrote it or changed anything. Like I really don't know. There's not much about this movie anywhere on the internet or out in the world. So that's why I want to see like a fancy Blu-ray of it. <laughs> like why can't Shout Factory put this movie out uh, and you know give it a cool, better cover with Dennis Quaid as a clown on it. And uh, yeah. And I want to see the original poster for it is pretty cool. With oh, the guy with his head on fire. That is really cool. I agree. Um, now, can we take a few minutes to just talk about Glenn Gordon Karen? Yeah, I don't know much about him other than he created Moonlighting, right? Yeah, he created Moonlighting, which launched uh, the career of Bruce Willis and, you know, to some degree, Curtis Armstrong. <laughs> and uh, and also sort of brought Sybil Shepard back yeah. into uh, prominence. Uh, but he also, he wrote an episode of his first thing was he wrote an episode of taxi oh. uh, the great race in which judd hirsch's alex rieger and danny devito's louis de palma compete in a race to who can get uh, the most you know can get the most fares in a 24-hour period <laughs> and i think they're doing it like if if uh alex Basically, if Alex wins, if, if Louis wins, then Elaine Nardo has to, who's Mary Lou Henner, has to go out with him. And I think <laughs> Alex is just sort of being the good guy, like being like, and if I win, she doesn't have to go out with you. Um, and I think, and he also directed uh, or, or wrote a bunch of episodes of Breaking Away, the series huh. that Dennis Quaid wasn't in, but that's a Dennis Quaid connection and mm. uh, an episode of Fame, once again. That's why I brought in the the cello thing <laughs> and some Remington Steel episodes. And then he also was a main, one of the main players in Medium, the series with Patricia Arquette. Hmm. And it's good. It's as far as series go, that kind of series, it's got a very unique thing that uh, especially you as someone who really loves Patricia Arquette, I'd recommend it. So it's that's a good one. But. He, as you mentioned, he also was the director of Love Affair with Warren Beatty. And it's uh, from reading about that and studying that it's a, a film where Glenn Gordon Karen was kind of out of his league. I think that's his first movie after Wilder Napalm, right? Like, I think he went from Wilder yeah. Napalm to Love right. Affair. Right, too. So, as you said, uh, Wilder Napalm was supposed to come out earlier. The whole time that Wilder Napalm was not coming out, he was working on Love Affair with Warren Beatty, sort of thinking like, okay, I'm going to work with Warren Beatty and this is going to be amazing. Me and Hal Ashby and Arthur Penn and Barry Levinson. But he wasn't able to withstand Beatty in the collaboration, My is my understanding. And Beatty basically produce like as a as a producer and star he didn't direct it but he didn't let glenn gordon karen be a director either hmm. anyway so 
then after that, the only other film that Glenn Cor- Gordon Caron has directed is Picture Perfect, a Jennifer Aniston picture that is from 1997. That's a a, a nice rom-com. You know, it's good. It's I watched it and I can't even remember like a week ago and I can't even quite remember what it's about. But Jay Moore and Kevin Bacon are the two dudes in it. And okay. that's good. Olympia Dukakis, Ileana Douglas is in it. And that's all. It's always great to see Ileana Douglas in anything. And it stars Jennifer Aniston being, you know, in sort of peak gen- whatever 90s Jennifer Aniston was that it's the peak of that. Hmm. And it's good. But nothing like Wilder Napalm. Nothing else <laughs> in his whole uh, catalog is like this movie. Yeah, this movie is sort of a unique thing for a lot of these people. And it didn't ruin anyone's career, really. Like, you think a movie like this would, you think this would be sort of like a nothing but trouble, where it's like, we're not letting you make this movie a movie again. But like Deborah Winger did great after this. Like right after this, she did Shadowlands, where she had an Oscar nomination forget paris which i love like i love that movie um do you like forget paris that's a great movie i haven't seen it what oh man it's often considered like a when harry met sally ripoff because it's billy crystal and i think it's written by billy crystal oh maybe i have and seen oh and i have seen got... forget paris yes i yeah. have and uh the part where deborah winger has the bird stuck stuck to her face that's her doing comedy and doing very well like that there she's great in that movie um but well, I don't know if you knew this or not. In my Deborah Winger research, I guess she was the voice of E.T. Did you know that? That she's E.T.? I did not know that. Like, she's not credited, and it credits a different name, but supposedly she is the voice of E.T. And she has a cameo in E.T. uncredited during the Halloween scene where she's in a costume. But supposedly Spielberg was like, hey, will you do this voice? And she's like, sure. Can I you know, not get credited? And then she plays like a nurse zombie, like in the background of the scene. Halloween. But supposedly, rumor has it that she is E.T. Wow. <laughs> I hope that's true, because that's amazing. Just picturing her doing that voice. <laughs> uh, I wonder if she ever, if, she, if it's true, and I hope it is. I hope she will just like throw that out in a restaurant or something just to throw someone off. Her just being like, home. And then someone be like, wait, <laughs> E.T.? Like, no. Oh. All, maybe she, it's a secret she'll take to the grave, perhaps. Uh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, that's why, I, I, like, honestly, I hope I, I, you know, when I when I talk about these, I always imagine that the person who we're talking about might listen to this, and so, like, I don't, and I don't mind if, like, if Aaron Sorkin hears the negative, like the the <laughs> the negative criticisms I have of his work that come from a place of respect as an artist. And I feel like I just hope the same, like I really, I realized that this morning that I really just feel like there's a couple of scenes where Deborah Winger was allowed or they, they put the, they used the wrong take. She's too good an actress for me to think that the scenes where she's bad are because she's she's bad or she chose those takes or that, that like that, that's the way she, would play it that there's some thing there but it is a hurdle like if you watch it i mean i'm if deborah if you're listening watch the scene in the prison it looks it's 
I mean it. It's acting class bad. And I've been acting class bad in way more things, I, like a lot more than you ever have. <laughs> so describe and to me, what does what does that mean? Because I'm not an actor. So what does acting class bad mean to it's you? It's just sort of like you can see someone working out the beats as opposed to you can just see someone doing the dialogue. As opposed to you like living s- it and actually being it. Yeah, and like it's okay. it's not it's not in there and sometimes like acting class bad means like a really good actor can like Brando can have the thing in his ear or be reading cue cards and make it work. And because he's built to do that, like he's built he chooses to do that. He sets himself up to do that. But like in an acting class you just see lots of people saying I mean, acting, watch the scene in the prison. She has a a monologue walking back and forth. And it's just something that if I were her, I would be mad at the director for using that take. Because I can't, or for not telling me. And I'd be, honestly, I would be mad at Arliss Howard. for He's sitting next to you. He should tell you. Uh, um, This is, you gotta, something. (laughs) <laughs> because you, you need to be course corrected because that's the thing is uh, what it is, is an actor not being told that they're just running the lines. Like you, sometimes you need a director to just like say, Hey, wake up. This is not like, I get it. Now you like, cool. That was a good run through now. Slow it down and live it because we need to believe this when you walk out this door and don't, no one did that with her on that scene. And if I'm totally wrong, I'd love it. Write to us, contact at theworldiswrongpodcast.com. You watch that scene and you say, I really feel that as like a real thing as opposed to an actor saying lines. And, well, you'll be, I'll be the world that's wrong. Because the whole ethos of this is that if you're critical of something that someone else loves, the person who loves it is de facto right. I wish that I watched the scene and I didn't think that. Um, but I guess sometimes it's like this is one of the weird ways I'm built is that when I'm really critical, I, I'm passionate about being critical of things that I love because I love them so much, which tells you a lot about my parenting, <laughs> how I was parented. <laughs> so uh, <clears throat> anyway, yeah, well, that's uh, yeah, that's that's Wilder Napalm. Uh, do you feel like, uh, do you feel like you found a friend in, in, in this film? I feel, I, I'm, I'm in, I'm in on Wilder Napalm. Good. And I want you to keep watching more Dennis Quaid because I think you'll be surprised about some of his stuff. Oh, I, I already like it. I know, but keep going. Keep, keep going. I'm looking for, you, you got me (laughs) excited for, to get, to dig into late era, dig in later era Dennis Quaid. Please. Yeah. And I will watch And you got to watch Goliath. I know. I I will. I'll do it. Hi, I'm Brian. And I'm AJ. And we have a podcast called The Director's Wall. Examining a filmmaker's career, film by film. First up was M. Night Shyamalan, then Francis Ford Coppola. Who's next? Is there anything to this whole auteur theory? Find out on The Director's Wall. 
subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or your preferred listening platform. Have you ever thought about being a sex worker? Or robbing a bank? Or maybe you're bored and thinking of climbing Mount Everest on a whim. If you've got a bad idea, we've got good advice from the people who've been there. Hi, I'm Marty Caproni. And I'm Joe Garrix. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Good Advice for Bad Ideas, right here on the Paperhouse Podcast Network. It will be interesting. We promise. Dear listener, if you are just discovering our podcast, you can find all of our episodes on our website at theworldiswrongpodcast.com. You can also write to us at contact at theworldiswrongpodcast.com or follow us on Instagram at theworldiswrongpodcast. And now, back to the show. Eight notes scale an octave. Master the scale... And you master the score. Well, that was a that was a great conversation about yeah. about Wilder Napalm, Brian. I'm glad you. you I'm glad you uh, gave me an opportunity to go back and see it for the first time several times. <laughs> and now you own the laser disc, and like, hey, you're welcome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's in my life forever now. <laughs> now, is there anything that now we're recording this to you know just to let the listeners in? We're recording this. A while past when we actually recorded that last conversation, we're giving ourselves the opportunity to come in and correct any errors or get in any information that we that we missed. Is there anything that you wanted to correct? Hint, hint, hint. Oh yeah, Brian. So yeah, so I did more digging on this whole Deborah Winger ET thing. Oh boo! <laughs> and I was I was not quite right, but not quite wrong. So she was the voice of ET. On the set when they were filming, Spielberg wanted her there so the kids had someone to interact with. So she, I don't know if she was just like on the ground behind a Muppet or I don't know how they did it. But like they, she was the voice of E.T. when they filmed it. She was not the voice of E.T. in the finished movie. So like the voice you hear when you watch the movie is not her. So I hopefully maybe someday there could be like a fan bootleg of just the cuts with hearing Deborah Winger. I don't know if she does a little voice or, or what. But supposedly, though, some of her dialogue did make it through. I, did, I can't find out which ones, but supposedly a few words or lines here and there did make it in. So I'm guessing maybe she did do this weird voice. So I just wanted to correct that, that that is not her sane phone home, maybe, <laughs> in the movie. Just too, I got really excited about it, uh, you can hear uh, in, the, in the episode. But like, and then my excitement waned a bit when I realized it wasn't exactly true. Well, oh, well. <laughs> that's pretty bad, but you're forgiven. You're forgiven. Uh, I, on the other hand, have an apology to make. Uh, I don't know about you, but if, if uh, not you, Brian, but if, because I know you're not going to listen to this, but, uh, <laughs> but for the listeners who I, who I assume are listening to this because that's what makes them listeners, if they, uh, if they cringed when they heard me utter the phrase cinematically cinematic, in this last episode, I just want to deeply <laughs> apologize. It's not a line I would write, and I, I I was almost tempted to go back and 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 re-record that one line, but I think it would sound uncomfortable. So I just understand that I know it was a, a major uh, faux pas, and I apologize. <laughs> you know, out there somewhere, there is a movie podcast called The Cinematically Cinematic. You know that exists in somebody's basement, being recorded currently. <laughs> The cinemat, the cinematically cinematique, maybe. 
No. No. Um, <laughs> and uh, now I also I also wanted to share an an odd synchronicity that I I thought about a lot actually when I was editing the episode uh, because there's all this clown stuff we didn't really talk about it and we talked about the clown stuff in the show but during our our hiatus uh, the summer hiatus I put out what what is the last episode of the Radio 8 Ball show season three I don't know when season four is going to start there's no plans so it was effectively the, the the last episode of Radio 8 Ball dot 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 to be continued and in it I tell a story that relates to uh, an odd experience I have with the use of clown as an epithet. And so listening to Arliss Howard <clears throat> use clown as an epithet to Dennis Quaid just stirred all this, this up for me. Do you want me to, can I, can I, can I tell you the story, my, my yeah. clown story? Yeah. So I was hosting a Radio 8 Ball show in Olympia, and I got this local comedian to open the show. And I've done this a lot. Uh, Derek Sheen has been a, uh, an opener for the show. Emmett Montgomery has been an, an opener for the show. These are like the Seattle comedians that I, I know and, and, and like a lot. And I've, I, I, for some reason, I'm not going to say this comedian's name, but I do say it on the Radio 8 Ball podcast. I guess I just don't want to invite that energy in here but just say there's this comedian who's and who's opening this show and it didn't go well for him the audience didn't respond it happens from time to time he's a very funny guy uh but in this case it didn't work but he got he got pretty annoyed and afterwards he sent me this very angry text sort of insulting telling me my show sucked and that it was you know that <laughs> I had insulted him terribly like by inviting him to be a part of it. I didn't really understand it. And I just, I looked down at the phone and I, I sort of muttered to myself and to the crew who were around there like, Oh damn, I made the clown cry. I think I just, I think I, I think I made the clown sad. And, uh, and then I guess one of these crew people went out and told him this and he is a very big man. He's like, you know, six foot eight. He used to be in, uh, in prison. Uh, he's he's a big, scary guy, a big, lovable, scary guy, but a big, scary guy. And he was not particularly lovable when he came charging in saying, you called me a clown. What do you do, man? Why you call me a fucking clown? I'm like, uh, uh, I didn't uh, he's like, just admit it, admit it, admit it. And he was very scary. And eventually, I don't know if you know, you, I don't know if you were in Olympia when Obsidian was there, but this was at this club called Obsidian. And I Ran, had to run out the back door and run in the the front where the bar was and where there were people and stand behind the bar. And he came in and he was really still really angry. And it was really scary. Um, and at the same time, I thought kind of hilarious. Because here we have <laughs> this comedian who gets so angry at being referred to as a clown. It's like if someone referred to one of us as nerds. Like, we're film nerds. I mean, in certain senses, senses it could be in, an insult, but in general, if someone were like, oh, Andras and Brian, they're, they're nerds, I wouldn't get angry at that, I don't think. Uh, it's, a syn it's a synonym kind of for what we are. And, uh, and like then, film geek, how people call them film, film geek. geeks, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, 
since then, I have become aware that clown is a very uh, re-stimulating epithet for some people. And in this case, in this movie that we just watched, it, when it got thrown around, when Arliss Howard was just peppering Dennis Quaid with these sort of like, you're a clown. <laughs> I almost had sympathy for this comedian who who took this word so negatively. Now, that that one little story, that spills out into this whole other crazy controversy that is discussed in full on the uh, the <laughs> final episode of season three of Radio 8 Ball that you, that you can find at Radio8Ball.com. And it also found its way into a song that I did a video for with Andy Dick, and it's called Absolutely No Sense of Humor. <laughs> There's a comedian in this town who gets mad if you call him a clown, even though clown's just a synonym for his profession. So let's just call him Sam, the big comedian, with absolutely no sense of humor about the word clown. Well, he chased me down the street outside of Obsidian, shouting and threatening, man, he wasn't kidding. And if it happened to you, you believe that it was true. But since it happened to me, you probably think it didn't. Well, I did this guy the great injustice of inviting him to do my show. It didn't go as well as he hoped, and he blamed me for the whole situation. In an angry after-show text that led me to mutter under my breath, oh, I made the clown cry. plug in part a synchronicity and in part an opportunity for me to just tell this tragic tale one more time uh so uh that's uh so great thanks for thanks for letting me do that people should know that they can find your other podcast the director's wall where you're currently discussing francis ford coppola and of course people can find your other podcast the director's wall where you and AJ Gonzalez are going through Francis Ford Coppola's entire filmography. I highly recommend it. It's uh, it's much more in alignment with this show. So listeners of the show, I'm sure will enjoy that. 
And what I also hope they're going to enjoy is next week's episode, one of our guest host episodes. We're going to be looking at the film September 30th, uh, actually September 30, 1955. September 30, 1955, which is the date that James Dean died. And it is a uh, film about some young people dealing with that date. And it's a beautiful, strange, and wonderful film. And I'm going to be talking with Alex Simon about that. Get ready. Find that film, September 30th, 1955, to get ready for next week's episode. If you want to find us, you can find us at theworldiswrongpodcast.com on our website, uh, on Instagram at at theworldiswrongpodcast. And you can now find us on Twitter. Aren't you excited, Brian? Uh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're not. At World is Wrong Pod. At World is Wrong Pod. And that is that uh, Twitter account is just starting up. And so if you are listening to this, go find us, follow us. You'll see all the clips we post every uh, every day, pretty much, in promotion of these shows. So thanks again, Brian, for bringing this fantastic film to our attention. Is there, are there any last words you want to share with the listeners? Uh, no, just uh, this movie is, uh, was on Amazon. It may still be there. It's not hard to track down unless you want the Laserdisc, but uh, you can go to Andras's house and watch it with him. He'll make popcorn. And <laughs> yeah, now give it a chance. Give Wilder Napalm a chance. Cool. Okay. Well, until next time then, I just want to remind all of the listeners that, uh, well, the world is wrong, and it's probably wrong about you. I don't want to set the world on fire. I just want to start. A flame in your heart In my heart I have but one desire And that one is you No other will do I've lost all ambition for worldly acclaim. I just want to be the one you love. The one you love. And with your admission that you feel the same, I'll have reached the goal I'm dreaming of. Believe me, I don't want to set the world on fire. I just want to start a flame in your heart. Radio 8 Paul. Andras here. When I'm not co-hosting the World is Wrong podcast, I'm hosting and producing the Radio 8-Ball podcast, where we answer questions by picking songs at random, like picking musical tarot cards. 
We've hosted musical divinations for people like John C. Riley, Patricia Arquette, Tignataro, and Fred Armisen, and hosted over 200 songwriters providing the randomly chosen answers from Inara George and Dan Byrne to Mose Allison and Alan Toussaint. That's Radio 8 Ball, all one word. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and download our app from the iTunes App Store. Who was the comedian that got mad that you called him a clown? <laughs> Sam Miller. Who's, who's that? I don't know. No, that he's, just a, he's a local comedian. Very, he runs a lot of stuff. He's like Olympia guy? Yeah. Yeah, but like whenever any any of my comedian friends comes to come to town, he's like the host or open and like he's the guy who got me. He's the guy who got the comedian to call Starburns and tell them that I was harassing her. That got Radio Eight Ball kicked off of Starburns. That you were harassing some lady comedian? Yeah. But I'd never like basically I came to a show that he was hosting and he was really weird to me. And then this woman who I had never met except the one time she was on my show, but she was friends with him, called Starburns because she worked there as well, called the the managers and was told them that I was harassing her. And a friend of mine who knows them all was like was like, yeah, Sam probably put her up to it because he hates you. That's so weird. That's weird that she would go along with that. Well, if you listen to her, she's a comedian too, and that's kind of like, yeah. I mean, it is weird that she would go along with it, and at the same time, she did, so it's not, you know? Hmm. It's like it's like, it's always weird when someone does something until they do it, and then you like go back, and you're like, oh, I guess it makes sense hmm. that he was a bank robber. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, it's such a serious thing to accuse people of harassment and stuff. It's just crazy to do yeah. that just because... A guy bombed on his on stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you called a comedian a clown. Like, okay. Yeah. Hmm. Well, wild yeah. shit. Um. Okay. Uh. Well, you should listen to that Radio Eight Ball episode when you can. No, no. <laughs> what did she accuse you of? That's what. Like she just said that he was harassing me. Like how, what kind of harassing? Just that's that. What's what she said was you were harassing, or was it? Could just mean you were annoying. <laughs> she basically she was on my show once. If you listen to it, I'm like effusive, and I, well, here's okay. I'll tell you. So what ruined how it happened? I was, they were on my show. She and this she has a, a podcast called The Mormon and the Method, and she's the meth head, a former meth head. Her co-host is a former Mormon. They compare mm-hmm. notes on lives as meth heads and Mormons. It's very funny, very moving. And we were, they were both on Starburns, so I had them on as guests. And they asked a question, and they got... It was a show where I was the musical artist, and I was playing covers of other artists who had been on the show. Yeah. And I played the Peter David Connolly song, Are We Breaking Up Tonight, as the answer yeah. to their question. Little did I know that they were a romantic couple and they were in the middle of breaking up so their minds were blown by that answer but they didn't say anything about it and then the episode came out i didn't hear anything from them and about two weeks after it came out she sent me a facebook message saying hey sorry we didn't promote it that whole answer was really weird don't tell anyone but 
we were we're going through a breakup so it kind of just like rocked our worlds and i went back oh yeah no problem i don't yeah that's your business i'm sorry that was weird that's just kind of the nature of the show that was it that's the only time we've talked the whole time between the time she was on the show and Mm -hmm. when this happened we were in different i was in olympia and she was in los angeles there's mm-hmm. no phone calls. We never talked on the phone. Uh, there's no, like, there's no, if there was even the slightest investigation, it would be clear that this is nonsense. And then if you listen to her podcast, she brags about lying about stuff in <laughs> her life as a meth head. And she has a whole worldview around it of like, if something bad, if I make something bad happen for another person, then that person has that as their karma. Like I'm, I'm an agent. Her thing is sort of like I, she's an agent of chaos, but even when she's wrong, she's still doing the Lord's work, kind of thing. Okay. It's, so there is an ethos in that world in which it's like, oh well, my friend thinks this guy's a creep. He made me uncomfortable with his ma- weird magic. I'm gonna, yeah. And you know, I want to get in on. I don't know. And then whatever. Dot dot dot. I'm not going to fill in the blanks. But yeah. Uh, wow. When did you put the Radio Eight Ball episode up? Where you talked about all this? Uh, in August. Oh, have you heard from any of these people? <laughs> no, I don't expect. I mean, nobody listens. I mean, for the most part, the only people who listen to my show are in India. So, I mean, that's the whole thing is like getting kicked off of Starburns just had like we went from a certain number of listeners to a very, very small percentage of that. Hmm. And it just the show has not come back from that. Hmm. So. And but the thing is, she's that's the thing I talk about on the show. She's not the first. This isn't the first time that I have been the target of this kind of thing. Yeah. So. That's my car. Like, I'm sorry you yeah. had to go through all that crap. It sounds, te- it's not fun. It is terrible. And yeah. at the same time, you know, I do believe in karma. I'm a little, you know, so it's, it is my lesson to learn in this world. And so anyway, it, it, it's those kind of experiences that inform the creation of the world is wrong podcast. So. <laughs> Chicken or egg. Did it <laughs> did it start with a little shop of horrors? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. It's people that get all worked up about stuff. It's uh, it's no fun to be around those kind of people. Yeah. Well, especially so. when they're when there's an immoral like when the I think it's when people who take pleasure. I don't mind people getting worked up, but it's people who take pleasure in taking someone else, someone or something else down. You know, it mm-hmm. just goes back to the Razzies thing. It's like what Yeah. some people take think it's funny to hurt someone and watch them suffer from a distance. Yeah, it's very weird. <clears throat> I don't find that funny. No, me neither. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess agree. you could say that 90% of cinema is hurting people and watching from a distance. <laughs> sure. <laughs> But uh, yeah, yes. Okay. Okay. Well, sorry to bring it all up. I was just curious as to what it was all about. So, 